Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Listening more specifically to an episode being assembled on the fly in order to take advantage of the fact that my voice is a little deeper, a little bit sexier as of this morning because (laughs) I woke up with a sinus infection. Happens every now and then. I get this voice pretty often. Most often I get it because I am prone to tonsillitis, but I don't get tonsillitis often enough to warrant having them removed. I was always afraid of like mentioning to people that I had tonsillitis because I thought they were going to be like, uh-oh, better run to the hospital and, and get that shit sliced out of your throat. But I realize as I get older that pretty much nobody encourages like sort of outpatient surgery that basically like every surgical procedure, however innocuous it is, however mundane, however every day it is, it's still a surgical procedure and shit can go wrong. It's kind of like flying or driving in your car. We tend to overlook the fact that these are very dangerous activities. As much as they have been modernized and as much as those industries are regulated and new laws are constantly being implemented to keep people safe, you're still traveling at high speed among other drive. This is in the car. Driving high speed among other drivers who may or may not be paying attention. One time when I was 17, I got T-boned on US-1. It was late at night, and the only reason I had gone out was I went to Best Buy because I impulsively wanted Rob Zombie's Halloween on DVD. Bear in mind, I was 17, but after getting T-boned because I felt randomly at 8pm that I needed to watch Rob Zombie's Halloween, it prompted me to start thinking more critically about, like, what are the things that I actually need when it comes to, like, oh, I gotta get in my car and go out and fetch something. Because when I was 17, I was also plagued by this constant desire, like, this constant, random, distracting, overwhelming craving for Dr. Pepper. And I haven't had a Dr. Pepper probably in like 15 years since I was 17 which is nice to think about because on the one hand it means I haven't put that shit in my body in 15 years I gotta get just some points for that but also I bet if I if someone poured me like a straight Dr. Pepper with no ice and I took a sip I would taste 2007 I remember I was drinking it a lot and in that season I think I uh, the the Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out I'm going on a whim here also I know That was the period when I was binge-watching The Wire, and the only reason I was watching The Wire is because one, I was in love with The Sopranos and I was done with it, and two, I had this inscrutable photography teacher. He was very friendly but very quiet, and there were some people who adored him, and to everyone else, he was just inscrutable. He never smiled, you couldn't tell what he liked or disliked, he very dutifully did his job, never complained about anything, never raised his voice, he was also something of a curmudgeon. And I tried asking him a bunch of questions about himself, didn't get far, one day we had some downtime and I just rolled up to his desk and I started kind of talking at him and I was telling him how I back when Netflix was just a DVD service I had been getting all these DVDs of the Sopranos I had just finished I loved it a lot and I was kind of grieving the fact that I had traversed the entirety of this 84-hour story that had been so nourishing and, and, and enchanting and I was like what's your favorite show and he goes the wire and I was like what's that about and he goes it's about police and teachers and whatever, but it's, uh, 
he was saying basically that The Wire was to him what The Sopranos was for me. And he cracked a smile and he started saying that he he had even used the Netflix DVD service as I was describing myself using mine, saying that he would come home and there would be a new disc and he would only allow himself two episodes a night so that he could sort of stretch the joy out. So I started watching The Wire and the first season I really kind of wasn't that excited about, but he kept saying hold on until the fourth season. Third season is great, fourth is a masterpiece, fifth is kind of meh. And I was so, I don't know if this is like a prevailing curiosity, I don't know if I'm quite this way anymore, but at 17, I was so devoted to trying to figure out this dude that I dragged my ass through the first and second miserably boring seasons of The Wire. Maybe now at 32, they'd be more interesting. But at the time, I wanted to rip my fucking teeth out. And he was right. I got to the third season, fell in love with it. Got to the fourth season, and I was like, this is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. And then the fifth season was kind of meh. I don't remember how we got on this topic. What I was gonna... <laughs> Transition. What I was gonna talk about is the fact that one of my all-time favorite novelists, James Elroy, who's most famous for the novel on which the unfortunate movie Black Dahlia is based, and also L.A. Confidential, which was adapted into what I'm told is a pretty good movie. I think it won some Academy Awards. James Elroy is one of those novelists that I don't, whose work, it's not just that I love it, it was like a huge influence on my own writing and my own way of reading. He's got a new book coming out this year. It's called The Enchanters. A couple months ago, I reached out to Knopf, the publisher, and they were kind enough to send me an advanced copy, and I read it. I say... I say this with a little bit of hesitation because I'm trying to get into that business myself, but it was really, I did not enjoy it. I actually kind of hated it. I was actually angry as I was reading it. Another book I'm reading at the moment as kind of a personal project, some, like for lack of a creative project, I've set myself this new one of reading The Apotheosis of Chicklet, which is Jane Austen and particularly Pride and Prejudice, while at the same time reading The Apotheosis of what they call Dicklet, which is Gravity's Rainbow by Charles Dickens. And when I say, you know, The Apotheosis of Chicklet, which is Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, I don't mean that as a pejorative. When you read Pride and Prejudice, it's like, it's very, it seems very cliched and very stereotypical, but that's because Jane Austen created all of these story structures for the rom-com, for the more serious romance, for the Regency type. And kind of like when you read a Shakespeare play, even if you're not enjoying it, even if you're not really following everything that's going on, in your, like, little, in your periods of lucidity, while you're following the story, you invariably catch all of these turns of phrase, all of these dynamics that you realize have been referenced in a million things that you've watched, in The Simpsons, and Seinfeld, whatever. I'm dragging my ass through both of these books. I, for some reason, am intimidated by both of them. And even though Pride and Prejudice is like 250 pages, it's very accessible, very propulsive. I feel like I'm understanding it as much as I'm understanding Gravity's Rainbow, which is 750 pages and very plodding and very digressive and abstruse and unfriendly. I was listening to some criticism of um, Gravity's Rainbow, and it was being described as one of those clever white guy novels, which is a remark I've kind of heard before, and I've always thought, well, that sounds a little re re reductive and prejudicial, but it means something different to me now. I don't know if any of this shit is interesting. Point is, what I'm thinking about as, like, the clever white guy novel is just the, the novel that presumes that you're along for the ride, 
Jane Austen doesn't do that. She writes the kind of book that is supposed to seduce you if you're someone who's never heard of her name, never heard of this book, is not even generally interested in this kind of story. It is crafted almost as like a gesture of hospitality to the reader, inviting you in, feeding you information at sort of like easily digestible dollops. Whereas Gravity's Rainbow is just abrasively dense and difficult and forbidding, and it operates as though you are supposed to be intimidated into following along, that you're just supposed to go in bowing and just wait for something to start making sense. And there is something like that going on in James Elroy's new novel, The Enchanters, which it has glimpses in which it's like really fun. It's a really good time and I enjoyed it, but what I was enjoying was the voice. What I was enjoying was the company of one of my favorite writers who is very distinctly himself on the page in this book. The story, however, is a retread of a million things he's done before. He uses identical jokes that he has used in previous books. It just feels really fucking lazy. And it was so aggravating because it drives home the fact that this is a dude who, if he is edited, he's edited very lightly. Because this is like a 600 page book. It should not be 600 pages. I'm not even sure it should be like 400 pages. There are long, boring passages, many long, boring passages, describing how bored the main character is. Which leads me to think that it's the writer himself talking about his own boredom with his own product. And that feels like a bit of a betrayal. If you wrote a book, you were feeling bored as you were writing it, and so that boredom, that subject, was subsequently explored in later drafts, and now it's a major component of the text? Why are you gonna force that on me? If you know you have like a legion of loyal readers who really like your work, they're gonna buy it no matter what, you're basically spoon-feeding them shit. It really got me frustrated, like more than it should have. Especially because James Elroy is very serious about his work, very serious about his literary legacy, and his standing among his contemporaries, and how his work will be remembered as much as I'm frustrated and like borderline insulted by how boring and bad this book is, part of me wonders if it isn't grueling for him. Like, because there's an obvious awareness, the book is aware of how boring it is, I wonder if some of that is his own angst. Kind of like he's 75, writer, novel, all novelists get self-conscious about aging because they say you lose your ear for like the lyrical phrase, you lose your sense of timing, you start inadvertently repeating yourself from previous books. And I started to wonder about some meta component in which maybe the sort of boredom of the private investigator in this novel is a mirror image of our angsty author who is kind of self-flagellating on the page about how he can't manage to get out of this chair, maybe live a life beyond the page. I don't know if that's really reading it in the right direction, but it's the one that kept me interested. And it's the one that prompted me to think at length about what I've been talking about in recent episodes, which is the need to keep these books very much as like second fiddle in your life. Because if you really love books, that's great. But if you're following books as they come out, if you feel you're kind of caught up with the writers that you really want to, you know, fuck with, and now they're releasing new books, new books have a tendency to disappoint, especially if you go in with high expectations. So, you know, tap your... find substance in your daily life, your real, lived, social life. And when I think about my lived social life, I think immediately about work, because I seldom get out with friends. Most of my human encounters that don't involve family, that don't involve Marie or the dog, take place at my job. And so I think, okay, what's a substantive thing that has happened? When I got home from work yesterday, Marie asked me how it was, if anything interesting had happened, and frankly, no. 
This is often the case. It was the case when I would come home from school as a teenager and my parents would ask me what had happened and I'd say, nothing. When I look back on high school, it seems incredibly textured. It seems very vividly real with a lot of very interesting social dynamics going on. But again, that's in retrospect. As you're there, as you're living through it, it just feels like drudgery. It feels like a long prologue to your real life. But it's not. What you realize belatedly is, that is your real life. And a lot of it's kind of slipped away and it's irredeemable because you were distracted. You were imagining some future that wasn't even promised when instead you could have been looking around the room and talking with people and trying to learn, trying to discern things about their lives and your life and human nature and the world. Like yesterday at the grocery store, I was ringing this dude up. This guy and his wife, they were both Russian, thick accents, and the last thing I rang up and the last thing that I bagged for him was a mini watermelon. Now the mini watermelon is still pretty substantial. I would say it's about four pounds. And as he is paying, and as I am putting the watermelon into a bag, he stops me and he says, do you guys freeze these watermelons before they go out? And I was like, uh, no, I don't think so no and he was like okay good because you know when you freeze a watermelon you ruin it if you freeze a watermelon and you defrost it and you try to eat it it's ruined and i was like okay cool thanks and he was like and every single time i have bought this watermelon and he's getting heated and his voice is raising and he's jabbing an index finger in the direction of the watermelon. Every single time I have bought a watermelon from here, it's been terrible. And when I cut into it, it has the exact texture of a watermelon that has been frozen. And I said, that happens every single time. And he says, every single time with every one that I have bought, at least five times now. And I was holding the watermelon and I was holding the bag and I was like, do you... Are you sure you want this? And at first I was having like retail worker reflex where I was like, oh no, something's wrong. I did something wrong. This dude's upset. I'm going to get in trouble. But then some like passive aggressiveness and resentment started creeping through about the fact that like here I am, I'm six and a half hours deep into this shift and you're giving me shit about something I have nothing to do with. And he was like, yes, I want it, I want it. And he, he sort of started coming down. I think he realized what I was implying. And then he gestures at the bag, like, go ahead and put it in the bag. And then I held the bag like a couple inches away from the watermelon. And I was like, are you sure? Like, I can get a manager. We can get you a refund for all five of those watermelons. And he was like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. And he's like completely down from his sort of, and he's completely down now. He has parachuted down from the heights of testosterone. And he's talking like a civilized person. But I keep pressing it for some reason. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing as I'm doing it that there's no point here. I'm just trying to rub in his face how ridiculous his frustration is. And I said, no, really, if you bought five of these on separate occasions and all of them were terrible, I'll happily get the manager. He's right over there and he can come and give you five refunds. And he just like shook his head really hard and he flapped his hand at the bag. So I dropped the watermelon in the bag. I gave it to him and he left. And I spent the rest of my shift thinking about that encounter with a weird blend of like, I wish I hadn't done that. That was senselessly passive aggressive it would serve only to like get me in trouble or scratch some weird vindictive itch that i have that i kind of resent myself for having but at the same time even as i'm thinking those thoughts and kind of regretting my behavior i realize that the reason i'm playing it over and over again in my head is because it's delicious watching this dude get mad at me for something stupid and then immediately realize how stupid it was and like he looked genuinely embarrassed and I was thinking of what like a hideous thing it is in myself that I was enjoying and chewing on and savoring and replaying this dude's embarrassment. 
Similarly, a few days prior to that, the store was closed, and when the store is closed, there's still like 45 people who need to be rung up because there's always a swarm of people in the last 10 minutes. So there's a bunch of people shopping, scrambling to get all their shit into a basket because we've turned off the music over, you know, from the overhead speakers. And as it gets to be 9, 10, I start getting like not that conversational. And as it gets to be 9.15, I get quiet. And as it gets to be 9.25 and there are still people here checking out their groceries, I start getting not overtly hostile, but the silence itself is a kind of hostility. And I don't like that it comes out, but there's something about the music being off and all the lights having been turned on in the grocery store so that it looks very antiseptic and all of like the inventory brought out from the storage room so that we can start stocking the shelves again for the morning. The fact that it's like coming up on 9.30 and I've spent the past like seven and a half hours on my feet and it's just difficult to like look someone in the eye and continue to be polite. I can do the job, I can swipe the shit, and I can put it in a bag, and I can hand it to them, and I can wish them a good night, but I just feel like I can't do conversation. And a few nights ago, we were all locked up. I was the last person on register. It was 9.30. The last person left. The doors got locked. I go back into the store. I'm about to walk through the cash registers toward my closing duties. When a, a woman comes out from the aisle looking like Nell, you hear the, these stories of like 83-year-old Japanese men coming wide-eyed and skeletal out of the woods asking if World War II is over yet. That's what this woman looked like when she was noticing how empty and quiet the store was, and she had a basket packed to fucking capacity with shit that she was going to buy. And of course, the managers, they're, they work for the bonus. The salary is good, the insurance is good, but they want the good bonus. And their bonus is predicated on how much money the store earns. And when, at like 9.32, I saw this lady's gigantic fucking pile of groceries, I was keen to tell her, sorry, we're closed, I'm afraid you'll have to get the fuck out. But she looked mortified. She looked really genuinely embarrassed, and she started apologizing effusively. And then her apologizing made me uncomfortable, because the fact that she was apologizing made me realize that she could see on my face how angry I was. And the fact that a customer recognized my frustration and responded not with pride, but like, apology, made me realize, like, how unreasonable it was for me to be angry. Like, if I'm splashing around at a water park and then it starts to drizzle, like there's a little sun shower, I'm not gonna be like, oh, fuck. Now I'm all wet. So why would I be angry that here I am at my job, I've, I know that there's 30 minutes left, and here, like, I'm gonna do some job shit for 30 minutes. Whatever it is I'm spending my time on, I'm getting paid the same amount of money. And then what made me feel even worse about my own, like, scarcely concealable anger in that moment is when she came up to the register, she started talking about how much she loves the store and how much she loves the products and how much she loves the playlist. And I realized she was giving all these compliments to the store as if I, I would consider them personal. Like she's complimenting me and my store and my playlist. I have nothing to do with any of this shit, but I realized what the gesture was about. And then I noticed her t-shirt. Her t-shirt uh, at the center, it was a big rectangular black and white photo of a protest from like the 1960s and it said in gigantic letters on the top of the photo, fuck work. And underneath in even larger letters it said unionize. And then I felt even worse because I was like here I am being pissed about my fucking job, having to do my fucking job at my fucking workplace and this woman is so clearly on my team, <laughs> like she's so clearly on my side. And yet I'm giving her some moody, some moody as Pigeon would say, face ingredients when she's just trying to come up and pay for her 
groceries. I ended up mellowing a bit, having a little bit of conversation, nothing really deep or whatever. And all throughout, like, again, it was like 10 minutes bringing up her $300 worth of groceries. And of course, at the outset, she says what everybody says when they're trying to make light. And like, oh, I came here for one thing and I got $300 worth of shit, which gets harder and harder to laugh at. Kind of like, hey, you, 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 you working hard or hardly working? That and also, oh, there's no sticker on it. Guess it's free. <laughs> I'm recounting that and feeling the anger swell up in me again. And I'm often compelled to say to people, like in social settings, do not tell jokes at a cash register, ever, to anyone, no matter the circumstances, because it is hard enough to smile. Like there, I feel as though there are weighted hooks on either corner of my mouth, dragging it into a frown, and I'm actively resisting them all day. So when you come up and you tell me a joke that I've heard 11 times in the past five hours, it makes me want to bleed, but it shouldn't make me feel that way. I should bite my tongue. Anyways, the point of this episode is the new James Elroy book is really disappointing, but you might enjoy it if you like his writing style. Also, don't, Alex, don't be such a dick. Anyways, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna take my sinus somewhere else. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Thousand Movie Project Podcast. As I recently mentioned, I just finished a big creative project, and one of the things I'm jumping into to keep myself occupied, try new things, stay challenged, is I've been doodling shit. I've been doodling quite a lot and, like, writing notes to people. So if you're not totally freaked out by the idea of sharing your mailing address and you want to get a little something in the mail from... I was going to say the podcast from me is really the, where you're going to be getting mail from. You can go ahead and send your mailing address to thousandmovieproject at gmail.com. That's thousandmovieproject spelled out. It's the words, no numbers. And in the event that life things haven't swept me up and sort of consumed me in the time between when I'm posting this and when you send it, you should expect something in the mail in the ensuing couple weeks. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.